Hello, and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Danielle Hanley. And now that he's traced the phone lines all the way to my secret lair, joining me on the other line is John McMahon. Wow. What a trek it was to discover you were in Long Island all along. On Long Island. In Long Island, I always get confused about the prepositional situation. On Long Island, it refers to a landmass. You're in Suffolk County. You're on Long Island. You're in Brooklyn. You're on Long Island. Okay. This makes sense. Look, I successfully transitioned to online. I'm no longer in line, so I'm I'm making my way there. Is that like a Mountain West thing? I don't know. What it's it like the rest about. of the country says I'm in line, and like I spent six years in New York City, and then now say I'm online. Uh, oh, wow! In line makes sense in my it brain. Makes more sense, yeah. Yeah, and part of it is just because, like in Hebrew, that's how you would say it. You would never say online in Hebrew. Like that's not the right preposition. Um, but that's usually usually when like things that I have been saying in English for a million years, like and other people don't say them, don't make sense. It's like through Hebrew or French that I can understand what they what everybody okay. else is talking about. All right. So, but the Hanley fam says online, presumably. A million. Percent. I'm online at the store for bagels. Absolutely, no okay. one would. No one in this house would ever say in line. Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> So when you come and you go see the Eagles, like we're online to go see the Eagles. Okay, I'm there. I'm ready for that. I'll just have to avoid talking about Long Island, apparently. No, just use the right preposition. <laughs> I think it's safer bet if I don't even try. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. All right. Well, what are we doing here today, John? We're going to talk about not Long Island, unfortunately, and maybe the occasional preposition in the Americans season two, episode 10, Yousef, directed by Alan Arkin and written by Stephen Schiff and Stuart Zykerman. And Daniel, what would be our summary here? Yeah. IMDb tells us that a new mission with international stakes has Philip calling on Annalise for assistance just as an old foe returns to D.C. with a vendetta. Stan makes a discovery that could put the FBI hot on the trail of illegals. All right. So as that implies, there's a lot of plot that's happening in this episode, Danielle. I think we're going to kind of deal with that and why that might be the case. But before we do, I think it's maybe worth returning to a now familiar theme for not quite great books. Yeah. The Americans. And that's the relationship between sex and death. A good old Eros Thanatos uh, combo pack. A good old one-two punch. Yeah. <laughs> so where do we see that operating in this episode, Danielle? I think perhaps the first or, or rather the most prominent place in my brain is between Annalise and Yusef yeah. um, in the scene sort of later on in the episode. Yeah. And the show does that in a number of ways, kind of most directly it is constantly cutting back and forth between the scene of Annalise seducing and having sex with Yusef and Elizabeth killing Javid in the hotel pool. Right. And yeah. it's like, extremely intense, extremely embodied, extremely like sweaty, extremely like effortful scenes, physical scenes in both, uh, in both halves of this, of this scene. Right. So like Elizabeth has wrapped herself around Javid to like poison him or like stab him with a syringe or some sort of like air gun or something. it's It's poison. Like, so she takes that pill so that's the anecdote. Um, so it must be like a poison pen. 
Yeah, so a poison pen, right? And it's very tightly focused on their bodies, mostly under the pool as they are struggling against one another. At the same time that there's some very hot scenes between Annalise and Yusef that are going on at literally the same time and the plot, literally the same time cutting back and forth between them in the episode. Yeah, like, and as you had pointed out before we started recording, the it's not just like that sex and death is a recurrent theme in this show, but in this uh, particular section of the episode, we are cutting between sex and death. And so there's like, there's an intermingling or a, or a blending of those things, painful, but not painful, like in an intense way. Yeah, I think you're right. And Annalise kind of calls that intensity or that fucked upness to the fore because the resolution, one of the resolutions or the second resolution of these paired scenes is actually Annalise like barging into the hotel room where Philip had been listening in. We can talk about what exactly is passing over his face when he's doing so in a couple of minutes, but Annalise like barges in is extremely mad at, Philip Qua Scott, the Swedish uh, defense intelligence guy, (laughs) right? For, you know, he says, she says to him, like, you pimped me out, right? Mm -hmm. Like, she, you know, has been turned into, like, both a sex worker and a spy in the same moment. She's really mad at Philip slash Scott, throws a glass at him, like, kind of, you know, comes towards him physically. And, like, Philip is ready to handle this, both in a physical sense and in a manipulation sense. Well, and, like, it throws into relief all of those moments in the episode where Elizabeth's like, are you going to be able to get Annalise there? Are you going to be able to get Annalise there? And then in the end, when she's like, how was Annalise? And, like, in the moment, he didn't get Annalise there. He still yeah. needed that those, like, physical and emotional manipulations in order to get her to a place that was palatable for the mission, like, af- after the fact. There's, like, something... I don't know, inauthentic or like there's a, there's an element of lying in the, like how in his answer to how was Annalise. Right. And that mirrors the lie he tells to Annalise, right? He tells her to like the ultimate after he has physically restrained her says, you don't know how much this hurts me or how much it kills me that the woman that I love, I'm asking you to do this. I'm having you do this. So on and so forth. And then like he then, has to go lie to Elizabeth and turns out that like Elizabeth was correct that Annalise was not ready. But Annalise's position is interesting here as a standpoint on the spying. And also it's a standpoint on this relationship between sex and death, even if she does not know the death that is occurring at the same time that she is having sex with Yusuf, because she is one of Philip's agents. Well, we haven't seen her since season one. Right. We haven't heard about her since season one. I don't think yeah. there's maybe one stray reference earlier in season two, but I might be making that up. And she is more outside of the game, quote unquote, than Yusef, than Javid, than obviously Philip and Elizabeth and the people they're in contact with regularly. So in some ways, like as a character in the structure of the show, I think she is an important or meaningful vehicle to contest what is happening or what Philip is having her do. And more so than she knows as a character, because she can't know that Elizabeth is killing Javid at the same moment. Absolutely. And, and also to 
give voice to the very reason why Elizabeth keeps asking the question, is Annalise going to be up to speed, right? Like, is she yeah. going to get there? Like, Annalise is is demonstrating exactly why that question needs to be asked. And, like, I think bringing up some old doubts that, like, linger between Philip and Elizabeth, um, which maybe we can talk about a little bit more later. But, like, I think you're absolutely right to understand Annalise as this vehicle through which to to sort of to view the relationship between sex and death and to explode that relationship as well. That's a good way to put it. And it happens almost quite literally in the way they compose the scene because it literally like they have synced up Elizabeth's like the final like stabbing yeah. Javid with Annalise's orgasm, right? So like yeah. they have literally like made that explosion quite visceral. And yeah. thus I think, you know, our asking us as viewers or challenging us as viewers, whether the extent to which we are able to differentiate between the sex and the death or extricate ourselves from like enjoying the fact that, you know, the scene between Annalise and Yusef is hot, right? When Yusef goes down on her or when Annalise then comes later, like it's a hot scene as the Americans just want to do. And all the way back as you pointed out before we started recording, like all the way back to the first episode, you know, Philip and Elizabeth first have sex on screen in the car after they have disposed of a body together, right? So the show is yes. like always challenging us as viewers about the ways that we take pleasure from the show or the characters take pleasure in the show in relationship to violence and death. Absolutely. That the relationship between sex and death is not something that is confined to one mission or mm -hmm. one moment. Mm -hmm. The overarching, like, I want to say conundrum that like that arises over and over and over again. And part of it is about the viewer experience and the, yeah. and the pleasure that viewers experience as you're saying. But part of it is also, I think about the, like the pleasure that Philip and Elizabeth derive from it and the mm -hmm. moments in which they are not deriving that pleasure, I think are places that's where we can really locate the tension between them, the tension between their, everyday lives and their mission, right? Like when they stop deriving pleasure from, from violence. And I think like being good at executing, yeah. mm -hmm. that's when they, it seems to me that's when they start to doubt w the bigger picture. It's an excellent point. And if that's the case, and I think it is the case. How did you read Matthew Reese as Philip as Scott's facial expressions when he is listening in on Annalise and Yusef. He seemed jealous. Yeah. Like that's yeah. like, he seemed jealous. He seemed concerned, which makes sense because he knows he's put her, put her in the situation that it, mm -hmm. like she's clearly not ready for as evidenced Correct. by the outburst. Yeah. Right. And the like sort of breaking the, for, the fourth wall of the mission mm -hmm. or whatever. It's a, a good way to put it. Yeah. Watch a lot of reality TV this week. <laughs> <laughs> because you're on Long Island, and I'm assuming that's what one does on Long Island. My parents have a lot of channels, and my sister Becky and I are, both have a real taste for Bravo. So I think we this is canon and not quite great books, thanks to Becky's appearance oh, last yeah, season. That's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I think like I read it as jealousy. I read it as concern. There's also a hint towards enjoyment. 
Yes. Which is is that what you were going to ask? Exactly where I was going to go because there's the hint of enjoyment and the hint of self-satisfaction that, okay, I was doubted that I could get Annalise here to do this and I'm successful. So it's both like perhaps taking sexual pleasure in like a voyeuristic sense, but then also the pleasure of him being right or him being successful or so he thinks for, you know, until Annalise comes, you know, barging into the hotel room. So yeah, I think you're right to see the like multiply shaded responses that are passing over Philip's face. (laughs) To your broader point though, about Philip and Elizabeth, we also see that depicted in the, cold open of the episode where Philip is back from the end of the ramifications of their mission. Um, Marshall Eagle and he's exhausted. He's like covered in mud and dirt, uh, in his underclothes. Like he's just is sitting there at the kitchen table after the camera kind of like pans through the darkened nighttime, like how Jennings and Elizabeth is like comes down and sees him there, gives an update on Paige and making Paige do domestic labor as recompense for the six hundred dollar situation. Like starts to make him some eggs, like goes over to comfort Philip, and they end up making out and presumably then have sex. It's a really kind of fucked up like opening scene in a lot of ways. But it also like to to go back to like the beginning of the series like mm-hmm. it's precisely what their relationship when mm-hmm. their relationship like starts to grow it's like when they're both processing the the like they're both using sex to process like violence yeah. right mm-hmm. so like it's not surprising Correct. that this is happening for them but yet again, like, I think it just, it reinforces the idea that, like, the Eros, the Natos relationship is such a present and prominent thing in this show, both implicitly and explicitly. I'd agree with you there. Now, we mentioned at the beginning that this relationship that's explored between sex and death in the episode, in the show, and in us as viewers is encased within, like, a somewhat more plot-heavy episode. Yeah. And so on the one hand, I think that that's kind of putting things in place for the final few episodes, right? There are three more episodes of this season to come after this one. So things are getting in order for the like ridiculousness of these last couple episodes to occur. But then at the same time, you pointed out that so much of the often plot heavy nature of this episode is characters dealing or not dealing with the fallout or the consequences or like the linked webs of ramifications from the previous episode or previous episodes even. Yeah. And I think that this, the, the sort of the presence of ramifications seems to be a thing that threads through like so many of the different interactions in this episode and like a way. And I think like, the relationship between sex and death is one way that the show is like asking the viewers to think about ramifications, right? Like the, like that linked relationship brings its own set of consequences. But I think like thinking more broadly about consequences um, helps us think through Uh, just a way to like link a bunch of the different plot points in, as you said, this plot heavy episode. Where should we start? I think we should start with Elizabeth and Philip. Like 
building off, building off their uh, hot and heavy scene in the beginning. In terms of Elizabeth and Philip, right? Like, I think they're dealing with the fallout of a million things. But I think <laughs> on the one hand, like, the thing that I kept coming back to in this episode is like the lingering uh, mistrust or or like doubt that exists between them that the series started with yeah. the but also like the and we get this a little bit on the previously on like the where elizabeth is doubting herself with that that an earlier interaction in the season so i think like the the fallout or the consequences of feelings of doubt building up do seem to like rear their ugly head here I think that that's a smart way to put it because they're dealing with both of the longstanding tension of their relationship as you've identified and also all of the shit that happened in Marshall Eagle, both in their like quote unquote professional lives and quote unquote personal lives, which we also have discussed ad nauseum are actually the same thing in the show. And the show is asking us to consider that in a number of ways because there's the distrust or the discomfort that they have with how Marshall Eagle went that then plays out. And there are a couple of disagreements about who should try to entrap Yousef and how, right? Should Elizabeth mm-hmm. do it? Should Annalise do it? Um, is that going to work? Um, and then also with regards to Paige, right? Because Paige is rightfully so giving Philip the like cold shoulder after he yeah. blew up at her, tore like the youth Bible pages out. Um, the youth Bible like gets a prominent shot, um, prominent <laughs> in, the, shot. In, the, in the episode as Elizabeth is just so happening to clean up and go, th- you know, Paige's room and go through the trash. Not at all a spy thing to do. And then, and Paige is like, you went through my trash? And yeah. she's like, I was taking your trash out. And in my brain, I was like, no one just taking the trash out stumbles upon the, like, ripped up pieces with, like, broken signatures on them. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, it's like one of those things that's like, it's such a spy thing. And, like, Elizabeth doesn't even realize it in the same way that, like, Paige and Henry have picked up behaviors from their parents that are like consistently freaking out Philip and Elizabeth. But like in reality, it's like, of course they've like picked up your weird, like hiding habits. You know, it's like, it's like people who are, uh, it's like people whose parents went through the depression who like always had money under the mattress, like probably always have like either too much food in their fridge or like always carry cash on them. Right. Like that you pick up these behaviors because of the trauma of the generation before you, like that is all over this episode. (laughs) It is. And Paige is dealing with constantly shifting both things she does not know about what you just identified and the changing roles that her parents are taking, right? Philip is more mad than Elizabeth about the $600 or at least demonstrably and like angrily more, more mm-hmm. upset about it. But then Philip wants to like do the soft touch and like, maybe you can go do this summer camp this summer. Elizabeth is like, fuck no, no summer camp. Yeah. Jesus freaks. No one else gets to like shape my child's mind or whatever it is that she says. And Paige, so like is having to, 
triangulate herself between her parents, which of course is also triangulating herself between these two spies that are overseeing her life and trying to, as she says, like learn social values, go hiking and swimming and become a better person. Like she just wants (laughs) like no ambition, just vibes and her parents, even though the vibes are Jesus-y, but like her parents are not here for it. No, and I think to your point about them constantly switching, on the one hand, Philip's like, I want to apologize to Paige. And Elizabeth's like, no, like, you were right. I, I like, made her clean up the kitchen. And Philip's <laughs> sort of like, I'm sorry, what? I, I can't deal with this right now, but what the fuck? And then, like, a minute later, or, like, a few uh, scenes later, Elizabeth is like, you're too easy on her. And it's like... Okay, lady. Okay. Um, and I mean, it's, it's also notable the forms of control that Elizabeth wants to introduce in the home yeah. life vis-a-vis Paige. But, you know, one of I, the obvious point to make is that things are consistently out of control in, like, their spy missions for the USSR. And so, of course, she's going to then try to assert control in the family portion of her life as a Soviet spy, right? So she says, you know, at one point quite directly to Paige, I know what's best for you, you don't. And then she tells Philip, well, we have to make sure she's, like, has a job. She needs to, you know, go take tickets to the movie theater or whatever. And Paige, in consistent Paige season two fashion, has some understanding of the emotional dynamics that are working. She says, she's like, Henry literally broke into the neighbor's house. (laughs) and I'm just trying to be a better person. And I was here for that. That's she's right. She's She's absolutely right. On the one hand page is hip to the fact that her parents are wild. Yes. On the other hand, you see that there is, some truth in what Elizabeth's saying. And I think you see Paige struggling with the fact, like, I think she wants her mom to know what's best for her, but Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. much like Philip has his doubts about Elizabeth's like well-being, Right. I think Paige has his doubts about her mother's like fitness, right. There's like a lot of doubt that circles around Elizabeth. And I think like, I think that there is like, there's a way to read that as like internalized misogyny from, from both sides. I think that's certainly possible again, as you say on both sides and it just complicates the attempts by Elizabeth and Philip to find any sort of certainty and grounding for their relationship amid the ramifications of all the shit that has happened uh, to them that they have caused that they're trying to deal with with regards to regards to their children with regards to their spying and we get a like challenge to this in the way that stan is returning to the ramifications of the murders of emmett and leanne and amelia back in alexandria in this opening of season two and we have this moment where stan connects quote unquote connects with uh like <laughs> interrogates okay. Jared, right? The one yeah. remaining member of oh the my Connors God. family. How did you respond to that scene? How do you see it kind of fitting into this episode more broadly yeah. in the exploration of consequences? Well, and I think it's also fitting to talk about Jared on the heels of talking about Paige and yes. a, a little bit of Henry, right? First of all, my and my notes say like Stan is being inhumane, like to interrogate a teenager whose parents were just 
brutally murdered who found the brutally murdered parents is just like, it just seems like completely inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Like there was something about that scene that just, why is there no social worker there? Why is there no lawyer there? Why is there not the people who have adopted Jared there? Why is no one there? Why is no one there? I feel like part of that is eighties, but part of that is just like, because this is a moment where I think Stan is good at his job and has yeah. like figured out when to slip in. Yeah. His instincts are correct. Uh, on that specific note yeah. and on the, I need to circle back to Jared. I, the Leanne yep. Emmett situation and he gets a huge assist from Gad here. It's Gad back and, um, which we'll get to, but he's correct in that the consequences or ramifications from that murder have not adequately been dealt with. So like this yeah. is a good at his job moment. Yeah. But so one, stand good at his job, but also heartless. So that was my first reaction. And then my second reaction to to sort of link it back to the discussion of ramifications and also the discussion of Paige being the child of spies. I think it's really interesting to think about Paige and, um, and Jared sort of side by side because Paige has internalized all of these different behaviors that her parents perform consciously and unconsciously around her. And she's conscious and unconscious of different pieces of it. And Stan grilling Jared is a moment where, like, for me, I was like, okay, well, Leanne and Emmett are better at their job, which is so sad because they're dead. Um, But, like, they were better at hiding who they were to their kids or or Jared just didn't pick up on it but I think like there was something really interesting about the questions that Stan was asking and if he were asking them to page the answers would be so different because she's we already know that she's picked up on so much right when Stan asked Jared well did your parents does it ever seem like your parents had secrets did they ever travel did they have any friends like these are all things where the show has explicitly commented on in previous episodes why Elizabeth and Philip would fail on each of those counts right and so Paige would be like yes it seems like they have all sorts of secrets yes it seems like they're hiding things somewhere but I can't yeah. quite figure out where although the basement seems likely no they don't have any friends yes they're gone all the time on all of these places you're exactly right the Paige would be given different answers so I think it speaks both to I think I think you're right that it speaks to what Leanne and Emmett did or didn't do because there's another reading of this scene where like somehow the thing about Leanne and Emmett is spies that got passed down to Jared in, you mm-hmm. know, without him knowing is not the, well, my parents are up to shit, but the, I can hold up to this interrogation thing. Yeah. Right. So like maybe where yeah. pages is the suspicion or the acting out or the doing sneaky stuff herself, right. The way that this, got transmitted to and then enacted by this inheritance from secret inheritance from parents for Jared coming out in a different way. Yeah. That the, like there's something about being even keel and not that he's fully even keel, but like breaks down at the end. Right. Yeah. But there is a, you're right. That if Paige is suspicious, perhaps, and we don't know, perhaps Jared knows that, his parents were spies or has like the same inklings that Paige does 
right? There's a way, there's a version of this story where, where Jared has the same suspicions as Paige does, but is not like angry about them. Mm, Knows right. that it's something he needs right. to protect. Like we don't know Jared's like motivations or intentions. So I think like your reading of the scene where like he has absorbed and is now enacting a kind of like barrier, but like a, a barrier a seemingly authentic barrier like that could also be the inheritance of a child of spies. Sounds like we got some Daniel dossier, early content, uh, and then what you just said, we'll take it. We'll always love the dossier. And I'll also just point out with regards to Stan and Jared, that this is a moment where consequences from one set of characters or one strand of the Americans crosses over into another, right? Cause like Stan showing up to see Jared is, has a different valence than Elizabeth in disguise as a social worker showing up to Jared by bringing Stan and then the Jennings much closer together. And like, like you said, this is a Stan is good at his job moment, even if he's being like creepy and manipulative as fuck to this teenager. I mean, he has the sketches, right? He knows to show the sketches to Jared. He knows to show the sketches to Jared. Good on the creepy wigs of Philip and Elizabeth. Yeah. And good on Emma and Leanne for keeping them away from their kids for a moment just like this. Yeah. (laughs) With with the exceptions of, or possible exceptions of, right? So they say that they will use their kids as cover when they need to right? witness like Emmett being like, well, you have to have your son with you. Like yeah. the contact's going to be expecting a child or, and no one knows this except for Philip. And I guess he told, I think he told Elizabeth at one point, Jared does get a glimpse of in disguise Philip in the hotel hallway. Like Philip yeah. is turning into the stairwell yes. as Jared is coming back towards the room. So Jared may have literally zero memory of this, but like it did happen. Like physically they were in the same space at some point. But that was not because Emmett and Leanne. Correct. And I guess I'm just like to think, to think a little bit more along the thread of ramifications. Right. We've talked a lot about the fact that, like, Philip and Elizabeth don't have any friends. That's, like, a thing that comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. And this is precisely the moment where, like, they need to not have friends. Even though Emmett and Leanne were the closest things to friends that they had, right, there's still this wall of separation. And that wall of separation is about protection. And so, like, the ramifications of these choices are still hitting episodes later, which I just think is, like, so smartly done and we don't always get that in shows anymore yeah the americans is i think they strike a balance of serialization and episode by episode stuff very well not necessarily in season one i think if i'm remembering back like that was one of my nitpicks with season number one and they successfully have figured that out by season two i think yeah i feel like it feels much stronger here so i'm i'm on board with that Stan gets a little ramifications of the end of him and Sandy. We get this somewhat brief scene with Nina where Stan is 
feeling the ramifications both of Waldean and Emmett's murder has something to do with what I'm trying to figure out and the ramifications of Sandy having an affair. Cause he like, of course, of course, of in course. the midst of being like, I'm putting some puzzle pieces together. I'm figuring some things out. I'm all, this is all business. I'm going to ask Nina about, did you know anything about these murders? Was there were things crazy at the Residentura the day that these murders happened? And he can't let that be. He has to, because he is with Nina be like, Sandra's having an affair to which Nina of course offers the line. So are you <laughs> that line delivery, I think is like perhaps the best line delivery that Nina has all season so far. And like, that's saying quite a lot because of, I mean, I even have other lines in this episode we'll get to with Nina, but you're right. Yeah. That's an excellent line reading by Annette Mahendra. Well, cause it's just, it's like, it's such a read, right. Yeah. And Stan's not expecting it. Like he's, I think expecting Nina to like coddle him, mm-hmm. not because she ever does, but because that's what he needs in a woman. Yes. A hundred percent. Nina recognizing that switches from, reading Stan to coddling Stan, right? It's I'm sad to see you in pain. Let me give you like a very loving, warm hug. Right. So Nina, she understands the emotional dynamics of the situation. Stan does not. Well, and like, again, perhaps like another point of, of consequences or ramifications is just like, Stan hasn't really been dealing with the fallout of, of like him having an affair. Correct. And Sandy having an affair is part of that fallout. Yes. And so, like, this is the first time we're seeing him grapple with that. But it's, like, at the expense of being good at his job. Correct. It's all connected. It's all connected. What other ramifications do we have? We're both going to go for the segue there. I love it. Well, we get the ramifications of... Arcadi and Gad meeting in the diner, um, a, a scene that I love. They're in the snow somewhere in, I don't know, like Park Slope or something uh, would be my guess, or like Prospect Heights. And they are, rather than Gad showing up where Arcadi is at the diner having breakfast or coffee or whatever, Arcadi is like, let me step it up a bit and show up literally outside of your house as you're walking out the front door. Um, and and they have... Well, and Gad is like, so you just wanted to show me, show me that you knew, that I knew, that you knew, that I knew where. <laughs> like a exactly. lot of like. <laughs> exactly. Oh, what is what a scene is they're standing out there in the snow, right? We get a line that I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. We get some fashion that I think we're going to talk about later. Yeah. But on the ramifications, here we're still feeling the consequences of particularly the death of Vlad Kasigan and then also the death of Chris Amador from season yep. one, including Arcadi wanting to try to make Gad be like, you fucked up by killing this guy who was going to wash out in a less than a yeah. year because he didn't have the stomach to be a spy and like, what a, a doctor to which Gad gives the icy reply of sounds like he should have just been a doctor or something to that effect. Yeah. Well, and I, I read that a slightly differently, yes, that a please. little bit, a little bit less you fucked up and a little bit more like the reason I w- was willing to go along with your plan about the police and like, and sort of like helping you out is because this guy literally meant nothing to the organization. 
Like that's how I read it. So it's a little um, bit so of my, like, my, my Arcadi love like clouded my analytical critical judgment here is what uh, you're saying. Listen, <laughs> it happens to the best of us. It does, especially with our boy Levgorn. Especially with our boy Levgorn. Um, but yeah, that's how I read that scene. Just a little, a little bit of like chest puffing mm-hmm. because Gad is someone who needs his puff, his chest puffed, who needs a chest to be puffed against him, right? Like, that's a good like, point. Yeah. And so I think this is not like a, I cowered to your demands, but instead, like, I'm letting you know that, like, this, I, I benefit from this too. And that's why I'm willing to go along with it. Yeah. I think you're right about that. More to come about Arcadi and God, because of course. More to come. We also um, get another consequence of Larrick, who goes on his Larrick. literal detective mission, like posing as a detective. He has orchestrated a return from Nicaragua, or I forget, he wasn't in Nicaragua. He was training right-wing guerrillas somewhere else, I think. Yeah. Actually. Um, not in Nicaragua itself, to come back and be like, well, what the fuck happened? And he makes it his mission personally in this episode to presumably he's trying to track down Philip and Elizabeth. Right. And like goes through several steps, including one of two like horror movie, like slasher film scenes in this episode where he's in the house where the phone lines to the phone operator have been diverted through. Right. And he's like in the house with the whole family dodging them, including a several like fake out shots of, well, you think, that he's going to be standing there and like kill this little child. Like I really thought that I thought that he was going to kill the little girl. I f- yeah. I was like very afraid of that because he's he's a man on a mission right now, right? He's cold blooded, and so he's not thinking about the consequences of his actions in the future. He's thinking about the like precise thing that he wants to happen. Mm-hmm. Reacting. To what he, I assume, views as Elizabeth fucking up their deal that they made in the scene where he then kills Lucia, right? Like, he and Elizabeth make this deal about, okay, I will do this, and then I'm out, and you will limit yourself to these things about your mission on the base. And these are people, like, he viewed Elizabeth and Philip, like, murdering them as, like, some of his, you know, fucking brothers or whatever. Yeah, I think that you're you're right about that. I guess I was just thinking about his like in general having some a kind of tunnel vision. Mm, yes. Um and like the I was trying to understand why we get literally my first note is why are we in the phone room again? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I was trying to understand why we get that long shot of yeah. like the phone operator and we've gotten a few of them this season. It's obviously, like, we've talked about how fun it is to, like, see the spy, the, like, spycraft at work in that (laughs) way. But this felt, the opening scene of the episode felt, or, like, this part of the opening scene felt, like, too pointed and worrisome. Yeah. And yeah. they're they're editing Lyric in an interesting way here, like what cuts they're making from him to what else. So yeah. right at the beginning, it's like we get just 20 seconds of Lyric being back, cut to the title sequence, come back from the title sequence. It's this extended scene in the phone operator room, right? Or later on, there's a cut directly from Lyric doing some of his own spy work to Stan, right? So there's a little bit of Stan Lyric contrasting. 
Lyric, who is, to your point, much more singularly focused and on mission than Stan is. We keep coming back to, like, is Stan good at his job? But there's just so many opportunities to compare Stan the question of Stan being good at his job to everybody else actually doing their job, both incredibly well and, and also, like, with regard to Lyric, perhaps too well in this particular Terrifyingly way. well. Right? Yeah, which, like, brings us to Lyric finds the phone operator and the phone operator, like, blows up the phone lines, but Lyric still manages to to preserve enough i was like confused about what was going on there like it seemed like things should be too burnt out for him to be able to find the specific line that he needed but alas like well i don't think he was looking for the specific line right he's like can i repair any of these phone lines so i can get one more lead and he gets a lead he calls up the like one number he can still access from the box and who does he call it happens to be kate happens to be kate (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. He, he calls in, like, the most caricature Southern accent possible yeah. as a wrong number. And Kate should be suspicious of that, right? Absolutely. She should definitely be suspicious. She should throw up some red flags. But we don't see her do any of that. When we don't, the show doesn't give us, like, any. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a lyric scene, not a Kate scene, so we don't see yeah. her response at all. I did think it was interesting to see Kate in a house, right? Yeah. Like, in a place that wasn't like some place of transience Larrick calling Kate to me brings us to like perhaps a way to wrap up this discussion of ramifications Yes, because with Kate, we have this exchange between her and Philip a little bit earlier on. And the exchange is like, well, you know, this is the mission. And it's like heads. If this goes awry, like heads will roll. And then the question is posed like whose head? Right. So I think with Kate, we get a reminder that it's not just that there are these sort of like uh, ramifications that circle out like rings in a pool that that continuously affect people, but that like the, you know, the smaller ramifications and impacts eventually have these like life or death consequences, which I think gets us back to the like Eros Thanatos of it all. Yeah, because George is killed, right? The phone operator. Yes. Uh, And we get this scene with Kate. After we have one of her many walk and talks with Philip this time they're in, I think one of these like pavilions in Prospect Park would be my guess. Or in this like Mm -hmm. faux classical Greek architecture, like pavilion. It's that's shot in a very pretty way. I thought I enjoyed that, um, that particular composition. And you're right. It's exactly about who is going to feel the ramifications if these missions don't go don't go as planned. Although they're celebrating the outcome of the Marshall Eagle mission at the same time that they're worried about what's going to happen if using Annalise goes badly and using Annalise did go badly to your point. Exactly. All right. Should we move on? I think we should move on. I feel like we've gotten our fill of ramifications for the moment. sure have. Um, All right, Danielle. So the flip side of ramifications quotes, I have a question for you to open Danielle Dossier, and then I'm going to hear any other entries. And that is, do you have any predictions for these last three episodes of season two? Because we have a ton on the table where we have what's going to happen with Lyric. We have this bubbling Afghan-Pakistani situation that's going on. We have Paige and Church and all sorts of Pastor Tim and all sorts of stuff there. 
We have lots of, you know, Stan trying to figure out shit about Oleg. Lots of things up in the air. Do you have any predictions about these final few episodes of season two? I think that Larrick kills Kate as an attempt to get to Philip and Elizabeth. But, like, I think he doesn't end up getting to Philip and Elizabeth or doesn't end up, like, hurting them. Like, I think... I think he kills Kate. I think that Martha dies also. <laughs> like, I just think that everybody dies. No Martha in this episode for the No record. Martha in this episode. And I think, am I r- right in remembering that we lo- last saw Philip before this episode when he was leaving Martha's? I believe so. Right? So, yeah, no Martha in this episode. And Gad is back. So I feel like Martha's got to be back next episode. And I feel like she's got to die. Well, the um, pen, there's a, like, one lingering second of the camera on the pen, which Gad unpacks and puts in the desk in his office. There you go. Well, we, so we left, Phil, we left Philip uh, with pastor Tim at the church when he like, Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. But yeah, so I think, I think Larry gets to Kate. I think Philip has to kill Martha, but perhaps can't. And so Elizabeth does it. Um, I think Maybe there is a like a version of this where Gad or Stan sees either Philip or Elizabeth in one of their disguises, but it's like a good disguise that he can't figure out and it's not long enough. What about Stan on the trail of Emmett and Leanne? Any predictions there? My sense is that he's going to figure it out, but not know that he figures it out. Okay. Like, like again, like good at his job, but not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. No comment on all your predictions. I'm excited though. I like, this was another episode (laughs) where it was really hard to turn off. Absolutely. I don't have any other big conspiracies like in this episode beyond the fact that I think like Jared probably, maybe Jared knows more than he is, uh, is letting on. I mean, we have theorizing several character deaths, theorizing <laughs> a, like, a sighting of, of Philip and Elizabeth, theorizing all sorts of Listen, things. So it's a quick jump into the dossier. The dossier has been unfilled. All right, let's go on to Glass. Let's start Glass off with what is maybe my favorite scene and maybe your least favorite scene of yeah. the whole episode. And that is, of course, Nina and Oyeg as they're like cuddling and talking after they've had sex and Oleg is like getting his clothes on to go back to wherever he's going. And this, I think we could also frame as a kind of ramifications. It's them dealing with the ramifications, both individually as characters, but then together in the relationship between them of all the things that have happened to Nina and that she has made happen and then additionally, the ramifications for the two of them having sex with one another, right? So we get this mostly monologue, but not entirely from Nina about growing up and being part of the young pioneers and there were no expectations and life was so simple. And now she's in this extremely complicated part of her life. as she says, here, my life is tangled, to which Oleg responds, something to the effect of you're the type of person who can do anything. And Nina gives the line, that's what I'm afraid of. What did you make of that one? That to me, again, that's another really good line read. And that to me, again, is like Nina, I think Nina's in a really tough position trying to navigate between the like 
double and triple agent of it all, right? Like, and and the, that's what I'm afraid of. I heard that as like, I'm losing myself in all of this, mm-hmm. which is, is like the journey that I see Nina going on. It's the losing herself, I think, and also the can I keep all of these plates spinning? Yeah. When she added the I'm having sex with Oli, again, seemingly like that's a genuine thing from her, but it's a complication because like they can't let anyone else know that that's happening. Anyone else being obviously not Stan, but also like Arkady can't know that or shouldn't know that, um, I don't think either. No, I think that that's right. She said that. In the last episode, we get the exchange with Nina and Oleg where she's like, people can't know about us. Yeah. Yeah. We also get Oleg, like, framing himself as an idealist I and saying so. that, like, you're surprised about that to Nina. Would you describe Oleg as an idealist? No, but I was, like, intrigued by the way that he thought of himself as such. Like, it's always interesting to hear this is with regard to like people in the world or characters on TV, the self characterization. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like thinking I I can think about how Oleg sees himself as an idealist, but like, that's definitely not the way that I would have characterized him myself. Yeah. And there's something else about Nina and like the back and forth between them and that's part of her responding to Oleg's idealism, I think, and also to Oleg's, uh, you're the kind of person who can do anything, where to, like, invoke a trope. I think Nina is trying to reject either the show or Oleg, making her into, like, manic pixie dream genshina um, of their lives, and... I'm here for that. Again, I think it's very consistent yeah. with uh, Zenshina being like young woman, um, <laughs> risky. Um, and oh, I didn't, God. you know, I wasn't going to, I knew that when I was, remember that when I wasn't going to look up Manic Pixie Dream uh, <laughs> to finish the whole thing. But the, it's, it's just part of Nina rejecting all of these roles that are coercively ascribed to her, even the ones that are seemingly more voluntaristic vis-a-vis Oleg still yeah. come with these pressures and uh, risks to her in her life. That's perhaps a way to connect Nina to all of the different discussions of ramifications that we had yeah. earlier is that like she is taking all these risks and can't, can't see fully the ramifications and that is scary to her. It is. And I, I love this scene so much. I literally wrote in my notes. I love this scene as it was <laughs> happening. Um, it's, I think second probably to the, the paired scenes of the murder of Javid and Annalise having sex with Yusef. But another one of the reasons I love this episode is that we just like get some fun humor and banter between the two of them and like all shoehorn in a, Maybe for the first time, I don't remember. So Nina does the previously on the Americans, um, you know, to mm-hmm. like intro because it's always a different character every week, except she does it in Russian this time. It's something like Priyadushi Syria, which is like previous episode or previous <laughs> in the series or something. Okay. Um, Priyadushi, something like that. Uh, I'm trying to trying to recall my pronunciation from back in the day. So we get that. We get the idiom that Nina uses of like, you're making my teeth hurt. Like you're being like too saccharine. You're being too sweet, which is just like a fun idiom that I remember happening at one point And I had to have explained to me while I was in semester in St. Petersburg. There's like a little bit of a nuance that's lost in the subtitles here. So 
you know, um, Nina and Oya are talking about like, well, would you ever want to go back or do you miss home or whatever? And the show translates Oya just saying, oh, you mean like back to Russia? When in fact, I think he like has a bit more sarcasm in there. He says, actually, yeah. like, the literal translation would be like back to the union as in the Soviet Union. He uses the word Soyuz of like Sovietsky Soyuz, so union. And I okay. think like there's meant to be some like irony or him like throwing a little side eye there, like back to the home that can't quite be translated in the subtitles. I buy that. I am all, I'm always here for like your Russian language double down. I feel very excited about it. Great. And then there's also one of uh, Nina's burns on Oyeg is like, oh, Oyeg sees himself as part of like the downtrodden nomenclatura, right? So the like privileged bureaucrats of the Soviet system would be nomenclatura. And I thought that was a great read by (laughs) Nina. Amazing. Um, Maybe some minor notes on Stan and Gad here. Yes. Do you want to start more seriously or less seriously? I want to start less seriously with the conspiracy wall. Please share, share your thoughts. I just like there was walls, plural. There are several conspiracies. There are maps. I, I like, it's just, it's, it's the flip side of like, oh, I love the spycraft stuff where they like have to leave a note in a bridge gate, like, or behind a tab machine. This is like the other side of that where it's like, we have to print out maps and highlight them in specific colors. Yeah. It just like, there's something like, just like super intense and amazing about it. It has everything you would want in a conspiracy wall. There are the blown up maps. There's multiple colors. We got string. We got index cards. We got photographs. We got got images. We got everything. Oh, I, I love it so much. So if that's something that they're succeeding at in that scene between Stan and Gad, one thing they don't succeed at, don't they need to wear gloves to handle evidence? Oh my God. I thought about this last episode and I thought about it again today. So I wanted to raise the concern. It's the same. I had a different version of that concern, which is like, what about the cameras in the pool? And then I was like, it's the eighties. No one does anything like yeah. that's, I think that's the answer to both of this. Like I, I suspect that if this were an actual ongoing investigation, then like, yeah, they do need to wear gloves, but like those things have probably already been dusted for prints. Right. right? And so, there's like, not much more to do. We're not, they're not getting DNA off the right. case. It's, it's not CSI. Yeah. <laughs> Gad obviously is like, I know I'm going to take apart this fucking briefcase. There's got to be something else in here. He His, lasers in, man. Yeah, he just like, he's like something. It's, um, I, the other night was watching The Accountant and there's a scene in that movie where Anna Kendrick's character realizes that like the painting she has been sent has like a little divot. And like, so, and the painting is like, it's the dogs playing poker. Mm-hmm. So she realizes it has a divot and like pulls at it. And there's, like, underneath the canvas of the dogs playing poker is, like, a Jackson Pollock original. So she, like, <laughs> sees the divot and pulls at it. And that felt like ex- Gad's, like, I see that something is amiss here, but I can't quite figure out what it is right. and just, like, went after it. Right. It's that he sees that the briefcase is out of place to go on vacation, quote, unquote. Yeah. And then he was like, I can figure this out eventually. It's an intelligence service, right? It's not drug dealers. It's not smugglers. He gets that. Um, Good thing that Philip and Elizabeth also went to the briefcase and Philip like extracted the coded messages. 
back in episode one. I, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, Philip, good at his job. <laughs> good at his job. And of course, like the scene opens with Stan and Noah Emmerich giving the classic at this point, Stan is very perplexed, like purse yep. lips situation. Yep. Noah Emmerich has had lots of time to perfect that look because Stan is often hard, deep in thought, perplexed, confused, uncertain, yeah. but has the instinct he's on to something. And Noah Emmerich captures all of it. All of it. And captures it well. I like Noah Emmerich is an impressive actor, even though I hate him in the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So what else? I think we have some more minor things uh, left in glass, but let's, let's get through them. Um, Elizabeth's disguise and like the approach she makes to Yusuf, like, yeah. Hey, she looks great in that disguise. The, obviously. I have in my notes, blonde wig. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Probably one of her better like wigs, just from a pure, like classic beauty perspective. Well, and also so smart because she looks like Annalise, right? Like that, that's great, the cool. thing that yep, they're doing. Exactly like, right. She's trying to be Annalise, and so it's perfect. Well, she's not... Have they talked about Annalise yet at that point? I think it's only after that. No, I I think it's before. Okay. Okay. So then she goes back to the office and is like, yeah, this isn't going to work. And then Philip's like, yes, I'm right. We should use Annalise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that's right. But even if if that's not, like, the conscious or, like, the intentional thing that's happening between Philip and Elizabeth in the episode, the, like, Annalise-Elizabeth parallels very very spot on. hundred percent. It's including Philip saying, I know you can do this mission, but you don't have yeah, to. You don't have to. Right. And then also the like newspaper flirting was funny to me. Yeah. It was funny. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> All right. Um, maybe we can talk about the final, final scene. So a uh, question for you first, then we'll get into like the more frivolous details, but okay. there's a version of this episode that just ends with, Annalise barging into the hotel room and Philip is like restraining her and then like manipulating her to say, I love you. It kills me that you have to do this. So on and so forth, Mm -hmm. you know, cut to black end of the episode there. But instead we get the lyric phone call to Kate and we get the final, final scene between Philip and Elizabeth back in the house where Elizabeth has like gone to her secret sig stash in the kitchen cabinet and is smoking in the house and Philip's like, the kids are going to smell it. And like, she yeah. just give a fuck. Um, and the look she gives him is great. But why do you think these two like brief scenes are in there after what I think logically could also have been the end of the episode? I think we need to see the emotional fallout for Elizabeth and the cigarettes are always a sign that like there's emotional turmoil afoot. Yeah. I think you're right. right. I warned you back early in season one, like Elizabeth smoking cigs is a sign of emotional distress. And like, that's absolutely what it, what it felt like here. All right, cool. Last note, much like Stan and Gab probably should have had gloves on. Elizabeth's just like, let me like crack some eggs somewhat nonchalantly and like wipe them on my dress on like my nightgown or whatever it is that she's wearing. And then go over to Philip, like wash your hands, Elizabeth, before you're going (laughs) to go like comfort and kiss Philip. That felt very eighties to me. Probably right about that. Like so, no one I'm was cons- a in the I'm 80s. concerned about salmonella trans- transmission in the Jennings household. Is all I'm saying. 
Honestly, they've like dealt with worse. (laughs) (laughs) Let's dig into borrowed nostalgia. Please. Lots of fashion and hair notes, I think, in this episode. I love Philip's look as Scott from Swedish Intelligence. It's maybe the best looking or most handsome of all of Philip's disguises, right? I think his hair is like not how I would ever like want to do my hair if I had hair, but uh, like it's, it looks good. The sideburns are nice. Love his glasses. He dresses a little bit better than most of the other like security bros in keeping with his like Swedish Nordic situation. And but, I'm just really here for the entirety of Philip's look as Scott from Swedish Intelligence. I think, like, it's one of, for me, it's one of the only times where there it's not a version of Dirtbag Philip. Mm-hmm. So that, that to me, speaks to why he's, like, put together. Yeah. Um, Kate has a sail, like, a giant sailboat brooch on her jacket when she's meeting with Philip that the camera catches a couple of times, which is A, cool on its own terms, and B, I don't know if you recall Claudia's squirrel brooch uh, that she's wearing in one episode back in season one. So, a uh, Kate-Claudia connection. Honestly, I fully miss that, but I like that you're calling attention to Great. it. <laughs> and also, like, so, I mean, we're recording this, uh, like, Nope has been out for almost a week now, or exactly a week at the point we're recording this. So, last weekend I saw Nope. Guess who I was surprised and happy to see in Nope, but Ren Schmidt, who plays Kate in The Americans. Oh. I was like, I can't recall anything else I've ever seen her in. And then there she is with a minor role in Nope, which, like, let me be the nine billionth person to say, it's great and you should see it. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Uh, let's see. I, I, I'm here for the overcoats that Arcadi and Gad are wearing. The overcoats felt super 80s. Also, there was something about, like, using an umbrella in a snowstorm that felt very 80s, but maybe it's not. It was a uh, wet snow. Like, it appeared to be a wet snow to me, so maybe. I've never used an umbrella in the snow. Neither have I, but maybe if you're, like you said, we're in the 80s. Like, Arcadi and Gad are, have, you know, counterpart-like roles, mostly dressed the same. Arcadi looks a, like a little bit better of an outfit than Gad, which I think I is think that's right with everything, including, like, they have the same umbrella, like, traditional black, like, government umbrella. Um, similar overcoats. I like the cut of Arcadi's a little bit more. I like the pants Arcadi's wearing a little bit more. I also just want to call attention to Elizabeth's bathing cap, yeah. which felt, like, aggressively 80s. <laughs> And very practical as, like, part of the disguise. Exactly. I was just going to say, I'm like, she didn't need a wig. Yeah, for once. Um, Nina's... Nina's hair from with Stan, am I correct that it's, like, extra volumized and lifted up and out than it usually is? It seemed like they were doing a little extra on her hair this week. And more more 80s Americana on her hair. That might be right because usually Nina's hair reads 60s to me and I do feel like if they're going to go more volume than like 80s would make sense. Yeah. Great. I thought to fashion and hair notes, like we said. Lots we of fashion got, and hair notes. We got more design notes though and that is the house that Jared is living in that Stan interrogates. Yeah. Which I think we called out on our borrowed nostalgia on the episode that Elizabeth goes to visit him. Let's but call like, it out again. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, one... We're nothing if not consistent. Correct. And two, like, that house is 80s central. There is so much yellow. 
So much not so a good much shade yellow. of yellow. No, but that was also very 80s. I will also say that the house that Larrick goes into with the dollhouse, there's something yeah. about a dollhouse that's very 80s. Yeah. My younger sister had a dollhouse. That would have been like this prime mid-90s, but I think you're right about that. Also, like the art in the Connor where Jared Connors is yeah, living, yeah. like also extremely 80s, especially in combination with the yellow walls, yellow fridge. Everything. Very 80s. Yeah. Um. So we both had this in our notes, the Lego my ego moment where it's like, it's not an ego. Mom made it. (laughs) And they show the Bisquick mix on the island in the kitchen to demonstrate the point. But also like Henry and Philip bantering again, bantering and Lego my ego. We love, we love. I will say that egos play a very huge role in the Hanley house. Sean Hanley (laughs) loves it toasted breakfast thing great so like love for on sundays he either makes biscuits or pancakes that's like a very standard like sean hanley thing but during the week we like still buy the costco size box of eggo waffles and my dad the other day was making them we were all awake because the dogs wake us up early um and i'm like dad do you want a fork he's like no and i'm like well you just put like butter and syrup and peanut butter on them. And he's like, no, I make a taco. <laughs> What's happening here? Brilliant. Like this is, and this is very much like, why would I, I don't need anything for my pizza. Let me just fold that shit in half. Like my slice. I, like, this is carried over to waffles and I'm a big fan of this. A hundred percent. So I felt like there was a good Hanley connection in this episode. So I think the other, Maybe this takes us on a little bit less of a fun note. Yes, which I think (laughs) is more or less the rest of the segment. Yeah, but um, so two things. Gad, when he's talking to Arcadi, has this line about like mutually assured destruction, which like is just so 80s. Like that, that feels like the only thing I learned about the 80s in like high school social studies classes. Yeah. Well, I mean, we also have like, I mean, war games, the movie comes out probably, it's not quite probably out when this takes place and like but right before like, April fools, but it's in the, it's in the ether. It's going to be emerging. So it's in the ether. And also like mutually assured destruction is like not only the structure of the, of the like relationship between the U S and Soviet mm-hmm. union, but also becomes like a way of life in this episode for Absolutely. Not some episode in the series as a whole for Arkady, for God, for everybody else, Absolutely. but especially for those two. A hundred percent. And so like when Gad says it, it's a little bit of a throwaway line, but it also is like such a defining moment. I think mm-hmm. I would also say that sort of like on this, like, uh, let's think about military and international relations in the Americans. Which we're both experts on. Full experts. (laughs) I did take intro to international relations in 2002. Great. From Jonathan Kirshner at Cornell. Um, But there's also, like, the war in Afghanistan, which is really the backdrop of like the, some of the pieces of this episode with Yusef and the delegation. And so like that also feels like incredibly, there's something about that that really grounds the show in the eighties for me. It does. And this is an amping up of something that has been a little ambient in a couple other places so far 
in the Americans, right? The opening scene of this season for Philip is the, like, he kills those people in the Afghan restaurant. Yes, exactly. Right. So like that's been there. That marker has been laid down. There've been a couple times where Soviet characters have like touched on the war in Afghanistan, but never seriously. But it's the, you know, the delegation, it's the Yusef and Javid storyline. It's Kate's conversation with Philip in the pavilion, like very much a a part of this right now. Absolutely. And one thing that I think we um, have maybe briefly touched on, but just worth saying more explicitly that I think it's worth wondering the extent to which Reagan as the embodiment of like the agreement between like, cold warriors, fiscal conserv quote unquote fiscal mm-hmm. conservatives, and then like the religious right coming together. Like that yeah. whole kind of new right and the influence of new right religious ideologies on American politics very directly. Ooh. How that's figuring into like it's not only opium of the masses, Marx, Soviet yeah. hatred of religion, but there's also a specific worry I presume Elizabeth has about Page getting into religion in the 1980s with Reagan as president, with like moral majority shit, with like yeah. the whole yeah. kind of Christian right uh, gaining power and prominence and presence. Yeah, because I, th- I think you're right about that. And I think like for Elizabeth, those things are not able to be disentangled, right? Like the, her hatred of Reagan and and the new right and what all that signifies and religion is all sort of like packaged together. Yeah. Last note in Bard Nostalgia, the song that plays over this great scene of the swimming pool and then of Yusuf and Annalise is Pete Townsend and Nathan Barr. It must be done. Didn't know this song before watching the Americans. It's a good song. Pete Townsend's a creep, like probably not much more to say than that, but we like, we like, I like calling out the needle drops. I was just going to say, John loves a good needle drop, and I love that you love it. Great. All right. Minor character of the week time. Yeah. And I think this time we're going to go for a twofer because we couldn't decide, and there were two good ones. So my nomination for minor character of the week is Javid Purvez, who's played by Maadeo Shivraj. He's – I just wanted to call out his – Less than stellar swimming skills, but like he was giving it his all. That that man swam a lot of laps. Yeah, he did very shitty turns, but cruel. (laughs) He's just getting some exercise. He's like you know in his probably late fifties or something. Great exercise regimen at the pool at night. Yeah, but he gave it his all. So he's my nominee for minor character of the week. Great. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna take this opportunity to butt into your minor character of the week to, okay. to note two things. Number one is that I mentioned above that Lyric in the House is like the one horror movie or slasher movie yeah. like touch in this episode of the Americans. The second is the way the pool scene is shot. We get a lot of like Elizabeth, we don't actually get to see always her full body. There's a couple of times where it's just like her legs as she's walking on the edge of the pool. There's the lighting in the episode is very horror movie adjacent, I think. So there's that. And then secondly, something you brought up earlier, are there no cameras anywhere? A hundred percent. So, you know, there's a hundred percent. Okay. Who is your, I mean, I'm on board with all of that. Who is your nominee for minor character of the week? It's got to be George, the phone operator, played by David Adkins, who we, as you pointed out, have had a little bit of observation with as viewers of the show 
He always is wearing a suit as he's doing his very serious business of Soviet spy logistics outside yeah. of, I think he's in Bethesda. It's, uh, it's learned in this episode. Yeah. And also I'd just like to point out that for a spy show, the Americans doesn't really do a lot of like James Bond shit. And I, like James Bond movies and I'm not afraid to admit it. So I'm not, I don't say that, uh, Look to, at to you denigrate. In the zeitgeist. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> but it's liking like popular, not smart things. Um, <laughs> uh, which maybe is rare for me or viewers will think is rare for me on the basis. Admitting it is rare for you. Admitting it is rare for you. I don't know. I think I'm willing to admit my, like my faves are problematic anyway. George, it's both the, he's always like impeccably dressed in like this kind of older style suit. And then also that he like has the self-destruct button and like the very dramatic, like sabotage of the phone operator system. These feel like the most James Bondy things that we have experienced so far in the American cinematic universe. It's so funny because I would have called them more mission impossible than James Bond, but that's I fair. That- same like, same difference, yeah. Yeah, but I I'm on I'm on board with it. Yeah. So George wanna... David Abkins, we're gonna miss you. We're gonna miss you as like you know the equivalent of Q, I guess. Yeah, and like listen, R.I.P. to them both. Yeah. Two two real ones. Two real ones. <laughs> All right, let's get into the cave. Yes, we have in a rare occasion. We yeah. are going to need to pull out the random number generator, the random political theory generator for this episode. So spin that roulette wheel, editor. Uh, let's go. And we have with us this week in the cave, Danielle, number 38. Number 38 corresponds to the one, the only Rosa Luxemburg. Ooh, Rosa Luxemburg. I I will admit I'm a little bit of a I love the idea of her. Love the idea of her ideas, but I'm a little bit of a novice. Um, but John, you have a little bit more experience with with Luxembourg. I have written about Rosa Luxemburg. There is a three part, maybe four part series on Rosa Luxemburg on the now defunct always already podcast of which I was a partner of what Danielle has been a guest on previously. So I guess I'll take Rosa Luxemburg. There's a lot that Rosa Luxemburg done, did thought organized, um, theorized in her life and her work. I think probably for the Americans and for this episode of the Americans, what makes the most sense is to think about her account of colonialism and her account of primitive accumulation, right? Mm. So Luxembourg sees the act of colonialism and particularly kind of the ongoingness of primitive accumulation. So primitive accumulation is a concept in Marx that says like capitalism can't exist out of nowhere. There have to be bodies, labor, power, land, resources, et cetera, et cetera, accumulated so as to launch the transformation to capitalism. It's an exceptionally violent process. He's like dragging, you know, Adam Smith and, Dave Ricardo, as he so often does in his account of primitive accumulation. So in Capital, there's these kind of sketches of a Marxist theory of primitive accumulation. And so unspooling Marx's idea of primitive accumulation has been a consistent challenge for Marxist theorists since then. Yeah. And Rosa Luxemburg is probably the single most important figure in further developing this concept of primitive accumulation. 
And so what she says with um, doing that developmental work, that theoretical work, is that primitive accumulation is not a one-time thing or something that happened exclusively in the past as a kind of precursor or condition of possibility for capitalism, but rather capitalism, in order to grow, needs, in order to expand and for like the production of more surplus value, to be technical about it, and to have somewhere for the surplus value that is produced to go, that mm-hmm. proof accumulation must be this ongoing process where there's this continual creation of new sort of um, imperial or colonial frontiers, either okay. internally within yeah. the core or out in the periphery. That's not her language, but it works a core periphery. And it's also language that will be taken up later exactly. in thinking about yeah, Wallerstein and so on and so forth, who's not not doing what Luxembourg is doing, right? And so Luxembourg yeah. is thinking about kind of how colonialism and imperialism, both in their most explicit and direct forms, but also in what we might call neo-colonial forms or neo-imperial forms today, which is part of the book chapter on Luxembourg oh, that I'm a part of writing. We love a um, plug. The neo, neo, neo-imperial part is this kind of ongoing process. And thus, as we somehow work this back to the Americans and I gave this poor summary of Rosa Luxemburg. Um, Not poor. There's a lot of technical and like politically very salient things in Luxemburg and I didn't do either of those justice. But in an episode about Afghanistan and Pakistan in the 1980s, I think what Luxembourg does is help us consider the way that for the U.S., Pakistan is a kind of colonial outpost or that relationship um, between the U.S. and Pakistan is a colonial relationship. And similarly, that the USSR's relationship with Afghanistan is also a colonial relationship in which some of these dynamics of if not the same thing, like the production of surplus value in the Soviet Union, which is functioning a little differently. She's critical of the Soviet Union across a number of mechanisms. We won't get into that. But just the way that these relationships are colonial and you have the kind of centers of economic and political force operating on through within these colonial colonized places in order to kind of support the reproduction of the core countries is I think something that Luxembourg helps us think about. And that's my indirect attempt to make good on our random theorist generator promise. One, I think you've done a phenomenal job because as I said, I am a Luxembourg novice and I followed all of that. That was off the dome too. Like I didn't like look up my Luxembourg notes as we were chatting. I can attest you are just talking and not like there's no lecture notes uh around here so one that was amazing two i think the point about the fact that these that pakistan and afghanistan sort of work and have have a sort of colonial function Mm -hmm. for the u.s and the ussr i think is is like incredibly important and in the episode elizabeth says like this uh, i believe the quote is um, this war will be won in the third world, which I think just amplifies the point that you're making that there is something about the, like, the relationship to these other places that, like, this colonial relationship that is not only beneficial, but, like, incredibly important to the sustaining and reproduction of the ideology, the material, the capital, like all of that 
in the sort of like the, you know, the home country, like in the U.S. or the USSR. An excellent point, and one that points to another way we might apply one of Rosen Luxemburg's insights, and that is to say that not only is it about is it about reproducing those home countries, also about reproducing the Cold War itself, right? So exactly. the U.S. and USSR both saw, you know, the U.S. invasion of an ongoing, like, you know, extremely unjust war against Vietnam as an extension of the Cold War, and is that is a site where the Cold War was constantly being reproduced and extended. So too does the U.S. see the war in Afghanistan and the hopes to get, um, you know, to get the USSR trapped in Afghanistan and fund, you know, the Mujahideen and all of these things yeah. is a way to pay back the Cold War debt of the USSR yeah. supporting North Vietnam. They're going to do the same. And even in Kate, I believe it is, calls attention to that very dynamic in this episode. Yeah, and I think, like, that dynamic has been all over the season, to your point from earlier on, that, like, the season begins with Philip in, like, with the arms dealers in the Afghani restaurant, right? Like, that, the the sort of bleeding together of, like, you know, um, first world, third world of... Uh, first world, second world, third world, right? In this yeah, instance, first world, yeah. second world, third world. Yeah, the bleeding together of all of that. And then also just like, I mean, this brings me back, and maybe this is a, a silly note to end the cave on, but like, this brings me back to thinking about when you're learning about the Cold War in high school or in college. And it was really difficult for me to wrap my head around this concept of a Cold War, because I was like, but there are there's fighting happening in all these places, right? The, the proxy wars are like in the parlance, hot, hot wars, or like there these hot instances in the broader like scheme of the Cold War. But I think Luxembourg helps us understand that the like cold hot is itself a dynamic that like reproduces the, the, you know, the friend enemy distinction of the, like the Cold War proper. You have no idea how right you are. There's a part in the accumulation of capital where she specifically talks about how like liberal political thought and liberal ideology and liberal political economy erases the military force that is used to facilitate the extension of capital through processes of colonialism and imperialism. So you are precisely right. It takes us full circle also with regards to, uh, to Rosa Luxemburg. Honestly, I feel like the random number generator did us some justice today. I feel great for about once this in its life. Yeah. For once in its life. I, I can't even remember the last time we used it. So maybe I think it gave us one. some good ideas. <laughs> I think. All right. Well, what do we want to do with Rosa Luxemburg? I think she comes up with us. Oh, 100%. She's yeah. she's constructing an alternative just economy yeah. with us outside of the cave. Amazing. Amazing. And with that, I think we have come to the end of this episode. Sure have. As always, thanks to producer Amy. And up next in the feed on Tuesday, we'll have Moon Knight, episode five, Asylum, with a very special guest. Yes. And on on Thursday, American Season 2, Episode 11, Stealth, will drop. And thank you so much for joining us on Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast. Thank you for joining us.
us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast, which is created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.